When we're visited from another world, how will it happen? Will it be with a bang or a whimper? Will it be a war of the worlds, a day the earth stood still, a close encounter? Or will it be a settler arrival with a philosophical bent? Sounds like the perfect time for episode 37 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, it's not destroying, it's making something new, host, Howard Kastner. For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment. Today, I'm happy to welcome director, writer, producer, Gustavo A. Garzan, who has chosen the female-driven sci-fi epic, Annihilation, whereupon I have chosen the Andrei Tarkovsky philosophical sci-fi arthouse classic, Stalker both about alien arrivals that resulted in the creation of a mysterious location the government has cut off from the general public. To begin, Gustavo, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? First, I'm very happy to be with you, and a happy new year to everybody. I was born in Argentina, went to the U.S. in 82, I moved to California in 89, and I was at the UCLA animation program. Then I started doing music videos, features and commercials, and I was able to do near 200 music videos, being very fortunate to have been awarded the Grammy, the MTV, and Billboard Awards, among many. And then I started traveling to Mexico. I started to work a lot in the Hispanic market, work with many, many, many famous people, including Shakira, Ricky Martin. But also I was able to work with some country legends such as Johnny Cash. Then I started working mainly as a screenwriter as well. I'm sort of like a jack of all trades, if you will. What they call a movie hyphenist. Indeed, indeed. Well, with that, let's get to your selection, Annihilation. Annihilation is an American film released in 2018. It was written and directed by Alex Garland, based on the 2014 novel of the same name by Jeff Van the first book in his Southern Reach trilogy. It stars Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Tuva Novotny, Oscar Isaac, Benedict Wong, Sonoya Mitsuno, and David Kiasi. The basic premise revolves around the arrival of a meteor that landed inside a lighthouse and created an area that is called the Shimmer, a mysterious location that is slowly growing and taking over everything it runs into. The government has restricted access to the location, except for exploratory teams, none of whom have returned, until the husband of a biologist suddenly reappears at their house. After having been listed as dead, the biologist agrees to join the next team to go into the shimmer to try and understand what is happening. Why did you choose this film? When I first saw it, when it first came out, it really left such an impression on me. I was already an Alex Garland fan, not only as a writer, but as a director as well. Well, those Ex Machina was a fantastic film, but also I love Sunshine. You know, it was really a mesmerizing film. Annihilation, when I first saw it, it begged me to watch it again over and over. There's so many layers of meaning behind it. And it feels like a film about disintegration, self-destruction, but at the same time, evolution. It sort of begs the question of, is this where we're heading? It feels like a prophecy of an alien planet. Since I saw it, I've been reading many articles about it. There was one that parallels annihilation, like a metaphor of the planet having cancer. There were many, many readings of this film. 
I saw it also like you when it first came out. I found it visually stunning. Uh, for me, I think that's probably the strongest aspect of the movie. And I did find it interesting. It is a sci-fi movie that is of a philosophical bent. It's an intellectual sci-fi movie. It's not one that are based more on action and conflict. It does ask you to think. What are some of your favorite scenes from the film? I think there were three who can forget the bear scene. Yes. Mutation between a bear, a human being that the bear just attacked and killed. The remnants of the pain and grief, the crying of help of the victims, the mutation happens immediately. Usually we see in, in sci-fi movies, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic movies, a long process of decay. But here, everything's accelerated. The bear scene, it stays with you forever. There's another scene almost in the middle of the film once the five explorers are in the shimmer in which one of them starts transforming into this plant-like form. She's walking you can see weeds and stems, plants and leaves emanating from her body. During a conversation she walks away from Natalie Portman's character Lena where Lena goes after her then she's faced with this landscape where she sees plants or trees in the shape of human form. And then the ending, you know, what happens at the lighthouse where Lena, Natalie Portman's character, faces this amorphous being comes out from the source of the shimmer. That energy transforms into this material being and then that material being transforms into her. The shimmer is a refraction or a mirror of hers. Those are very striking visual and emotional scenes that really stuck with me. I certainly agree about the bear scene, where the bear has not just attacked and killed a character, it has also absorbed characters so that when the bear makes a sound, you hear the voice of the character saying, help me. It's a really creepy, really yes. very scary moment. I also love the short scene with the deer in the forest, where you have two deer yes. that perfectly mirror each other. I think there is one problem with trying to choose a favorite scene from the movie. It all looks so stunning. That it's one of those films that I do tend to find a little difficult to pull out one incident because there's just so much there. It is an eye candy film. And maybe you can speak to that. You like the director very much. So talk about the look of the film and the direction. You know what's really funny is that when I first saw it, when I saw the shimmer, it has this soap-like oil. Like looking in a soap bubble. A kaleidoscope bubble bubble floating in the air. I was like, uh. but then the more I looked at it, it sort of how constant the vision was throughout every ray of light through the trees had the prism-like rainbow in that shaft of light. The vision was very constant and this idea of nature metastasizing into colors and flowers, lilies or daisies that turn into orchidias, very strange in the way you saw it. When we talked about Stalker, we have this character, especially the Stalker character, telling you about what this is and we see a, a decay. Both films have this idea of decay. This idea of decay, what is left of humanity, being transformed under our very eyes, gives you this idea of uneasiness, puts you in a suspended, dreamlike, hallucinatory realm. Is the kind of filmmaking I love. Other people like the brothers Quay, Fellini, Antonioni, Bergman. It 
is true that in both Stalker and Annihilation, nature isn't decaying. Nature is taking over it. Everything else around it, anything man-made or anything human, is either decaying or changing beyond recognition. Nature is starting to reclaim, whether for better or for worse. I'd like to get into another area here from the viewpoint of style and meaning. That is to talk about annihilation from the viewpoint of postmodernism. I have a theory about where film is going, at least in the U.S. Film reached postmodernism say in the 70s and 80s, and then reached post postmodernism, and then it seemed to come to a halt. There was no place for film to go. It wasn't going anywhere. The biggest emphasis was simply on regurgitating or doing franchises, rebooting. But then I think something happened, and we're getting beyond post-postmodernism. Uh -huh. I'm calling it genre meets diversity, which we take genres, and they are made anew by taking a diverse view, whether in theme or casting, directing, screenwriting. You have horror films like Get Out, romantic comedies like The Big Sick, Crazy Rich Asians, and Love, Simon, which all have minority or diverse characters, storylines, comic book films like Black Panther and Wonder Woman. You have crime stories directed by women and by minorities. It's brought a whole new breath of fresh air into filmmaking, and I'm finally starting to see a new generation of filmmakers and films, which I didn't know where it was going to come from. And here we have Annihilation, and Annihilation has five female lead characters, and that puts it in that genre meets diversity category. And we've been having this female-led sci-fi for a bit. We've had Gravity, a I think there's something interesting about this. One, it's great. Sure, I mean, indeed. Because the yes. way women have been treated in movies in the 60s through the 90s, this is a quite an incredible breath of fresh air. But one thing I do notice, they put female leads, but at the same time to do so, they put a traditional female trope in for this. They have to have some sort of motivation or through line that relates to them as women. In Gravity, it revolves around a lost daughter. Arrival right. revolves around a daughter who, I believe, has cancer is a mother-daughter story. Right. And here, the central character has basically volunteered for this mission because, and this is a spoiler, she cheated on her husband. Because of that, that seems to imply why he joined the mission. So now she feels she owes him. Yes, yeah. indeed. She doesn't say, I love him, I owe him. Whereas men in movies like this, they do it because it's their duty, it's their job. They don't need a motivation that's male-focused. But still, for some reason, when it's women, we still have to give them certain female tropes. Now, the good side is that does give them depth to their character. It gives them something to act. It gives them a certain vibrancy. At the same time, we're still, they have to be women. For Gravity, Arrival, Annihilation, it works fine. But you also get to a movie like Wonder Woman 1984, where it's insulting. Hmm where Wonder Woman is this superhero who works at the Smithsonian. Her problem is she doesn't have a man in her life. And the secondary female character, Barbara Minerva, who is a gemologist at the Smithsonian, her only problem in her life is she doesn't have a man in her life. <laughs> yes. And you know what's interesting about Annihilation? This film had a bit of an uproar because Natalie Portman's character was an Asian descent in the book. And one of the other characters was half Native American. Yes. Alex Garland himself 
himself was attacked. They said, well, we didn't know that until the second book in the trilogy came out, which he describes totally the character as being Asian American and Native American. Paramount, I believe, thought about it as being too intellectual and the fact that five women and they found that people were not going to be able to relate to it. There is an interesting pattern there. Hollywood, if you will, not Alex Garland, but I think Hollywood walking on eggshells about how to incorporate diversity to have different voices represented on screen. What I think about what you're saying about female characters first, these female characters went in to really observe and understand the behavior of the Shimmer, whereas before they sent the military in to probably try to kill it or try to exterminate it, and they end up all being dead. Nobody was able to return. And I think the interesting part of having female characters in this particular film is about bringing a different look on the female understanding how a female character or how a woman would confront this. Right. You mentioned that Alex Garland's defense of changing some of the diversity of the cast was because in the first novel, the backgrounds of the characters aren't mentioned. But he also has minority characters in the group of five, including a lesbian. So he's not against diversity in the casting, though at the same time, it's hard to say if he had known that the lead was Asian in the book, would he have cast an Asian in the lead? This yes. is Paramount that is producing it. He might have had a very hard time doing that. But in Stalker, the women are very annoying. You yes. have this nagging, nagging wife who goes in, almost into hysteric because her husband is once again going into the zone. And you have the girlfriend of the writer who is a dilettante and the stalker just says, take off, get out of here, because she's not really that interested in going into the zone. The women are treated quite differently in each film. And I think it had to do, as much as I love Tarkovsky, his vision of women in his films, you know, very dubious of Perhaps women. Perhaps a bit I mean, uh, chauvinistic? Yeah, very much. Like take the sacrifice. The actress Suzanne, Suzanne Alexander, who was the woman who also goes into some sort of hysterics. Then Domiciana in Nostalgia, where the poet and casts her aside. That's very different from Alex Garland's. Take Ex Machina. Take Devs. The main characters are women, complex women. Tarkovsky's views in Stalker, the wife of the Stalker, who even says, "Why can I go to the zone?" And the guy says, "Because." I'm afraid that you might fail. Already they're being put down as second class. I think that might have to do with Tarkovsky's own view of women and probably the era where those films were made. His own upbringing, probably. The other area I wanted to talk about when it came to postmodernism, because you talk about the metaphor of the shimmer being cancer, and I've read that too, and I think it's very convincing. The shimmer does almost completely act like a cancer. But I also think that the movie is a perfect metaphor for postmodernism itself. Yes. They go in and they find these plants and animal life that have mutated and become one species, even though they're from different species. And theoretically, that's impossible. But they're combining, they're changing, they're influencing each other to become a new creature altogether. That's 
what postmodernism does. It takes all these things from the past and uses them and combines them in ways that they've never been combined before and does things in a different way because they're all of equal value. At the same time, everything, the plant life, the animal life, is basically destroying what we know of as the world. And there are people who say that, yes, that's what postmodernism is. It's a philosophy and an aesthetic approach to art, and its purpose is to destroy everything that has come before. Not everybody accepts that. I don't. I think that postmodernism can result in some sort of rebirth or resurrection rather than complete annihilation, but a lot of people believe that. This is a very, very pop culture reference, but it is in many ways like the Borg in the Star Trek series and the Star Trek movie Insurrection, in which the Borg absorbs everything right. and reforms it and makes it one. And that was a fear of what postmodernism was at the time. And what is interesting too, Howard, is that you have not only the outside world, if you will, corrupted, transformed and mutated, but also the mind, the consciousness of each character is corrupted as well. You have previous expeditions and then these characters starting to go crazy. Before they turn against each other or against themselves, they first go through this phase of madness, hallucinating their mind, corrupted in a way. And that's something about postmodernism too. When you have external circumstances, an external world that is changing, shape-shifting, playing tricks on you, like in Talker's The Zone, it puts you in, in an intellectual quicksand. In both films, those are very similar in that sense. The men in Stalker and the women in Annihilation suffer through this self-questioning and self-deprecation, self-examining. They're forced to confront themselves in a different light. We were talking about Alex Carlin as a filmmaker, and we were also talking about the fact that the film failed, because it is, I'm not sure you would call it a legendary bomb, but it failed at the box office. And there are various reasons for that. One, the rumors are that the previews were disastrous. Right. The audience simply did not like film. They didn't understand it. Alex Garland and the producer, Scott Rudin, I believe, refused to do anything about that. They were not going to do anything to change it in order to make it more appealing to the audience. I'm not going to blame them for that. I can't really get upset at artists who have a vision and say, no, I'm not going to compromise. But at the same time, you get this and Paramount, who is distributing, says, well, fine, we think this is going to be a huge bomb. We're not going to open it wide. We're not going to preview it for critics. You're on your own. And then they also sell distribution rights to Netflix in order to try to make some of their money back that they're about to lose. Right. One might look at Alex Garland and see whether, to some degree, he might have contributed to the failure in a way. One, spending so much money on an intellectual sci-fi movie that's very ambiguous might not have been the best way to go. But at the same time, I think Alex Garland is a stunning visual artist. I'm not convinced he's a particularly good storyteller. In this movie, the question then comes down at the end. Is it ambiguous because Alex Garland wrote an ambiguous movie? Or is it ambiguous because Alex Garland didn't know well, what it was know, about and he lost control of the philosophical aspect by the end and didn't have a real way to give the audience a satisfying ending? That's a very interesting question. 
What is interesting about the ending that you're talking about, for me, I was left with the impression that the married couple, like the bear, but the opposite. The bear taking all the remnants, the characteristics, leftovers of its victim. I think that both Oscar Isaac and the character of Lena, when you see the shimmer in their eyes, these are not the characters that we first know. There's something very unusual about how they are behaving towards each other. They are already mutated or transformed. I think that he wanted to leave that open ending, whether it's satisfying or not, he wants to leave the audience with a question. What I admired about him is that you have a director with principles, very much like Tarkovsky did. Those directors pay the consequences sometimes. So I think these people are one of use film to question reality, to question mankind, to question our psyche, our minds. And I think that's very admirable. Well, I agree. I'm much more supportive of the person who has that vision. And Alex Cardlin had something he wanted to do. And with the support of Scott Rudin, was able to do it. And in his defense, existential films like this that are ambiguous aren't often well-received immediately. I think we can, I won't say remember, because I wasn't around then. <laughs> but apparently, when Antonioni first did La Aventura, the reaction was very strong on both sides. It was very divisive. Right. Because it's an ambiguous ending. We don't don't know what happened to that character. She just disappeared. We never found out. Of course, that's the point of it. People disappear. We don't know. And we keep on going with our lives. Right. But it took a while for people to get to it. And I think in some ways, the same was for Stalker. I think it did take time for people to catch on to that. And I will be talking about that when I tell you about the first time I saw Stalker. Yes. <laughs> there was another ending. It wasn't filmed. It was in an earlier draft of the screenplay by Alex Carlin. And I do wonder if that alone could have made a difference in how it was received. After all this happens, the last scene is all these meteorite-like arrivals hit all over the Earth. Oh, wow. So basically, it ends with an alien invasion. Wow. And that this first one was basically to test the waters. Wow. That's pretty doomsday scenario. With that, here's some more information about the film. It grossed $43 million against a production budget between 40 to $55 million. So yes, it was a box office bomb. There are no names given to the characters in the book. The character's name in the film, Ventress, Thornson, Radek, and Shepard, are identical to those in the novel The Crystal World by J.G. Ballard. And that's a novel in which, at the beginning of the novel, in three locations in the world, suddenly everything is starting to crystallize. Wow. And I immediately thought of that book as I was watching this movie. There's no explanation for it. No one knows what to do about it. Oscar Isaac filmed this movie and Star Wars The Last Jedi on adjacent studio lots. He had the same trailer for both films. He would often film scenes for both movies on the same day. With that, let's get to my selection, and that is Stalker. Yes. For some information about the film, Stalker is a Soviet film released in 1979. It was directed by Andrei Tarkovsky, who also worked on the screenplay, and written by the brothers Arkady and Boris Shugatsky, loosely based on their 1972 novel, Roadside Picnic. It stars, and I will do my best here, Alexander Kedanovsky, Anatoly Solonitsyn, Elisa Freundlich, Nikolai Grinko, Natasha Abramova, Femi Zhurno, E. 
Kostin, Remo Rindy, and Vladimir Zamansky. The story revolves around the mysterious arrival of some sort of extraterrestrial visitor in a remote location in an unnamed country. The government has cordoned off the area, now called the zone, and forbidden anyone from entering. People believe that at the center of the area is a room that will grant people their deepest desires. This has given rise to stalkers, people who will lead people inside the zone to the room. The movie focuses on one such expedition, where a stalker takes a melancholic writer seeking inspiration and a professor seeking scientific discovery to this mysterious room. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? I thought you made a fantastic pairing. I thought it was really, really fascinating. In many reviews that I read about Annihilation, they have it that it owes Stalker a lot. They both have an alien form zone that plays and twists people's minds, people who explore it. I would say the difference is Stalkers, there's a lot of information that is really prophetic and really strange about that film. For example, I didn't know at all until I started reading that there were three directors of photography. There was a version that supposedly was really fantastic and only one shot was left. That original footage went up in a blaze in 1988. It's another thing that is really bizarre. A lot of people made some sort of comparison. You know, he's talking about Chernobyl. Film was made seven years before Chernobyl. The character's daughter is sort of like a mutant. Very different from the mutations that we see in Alex Garland. I also read that Tarkovsky had many more special effects, which I would have loved to see that film. Looking back at it again, very little special effects, if none. There were two or three that I remember. And it's not that Tarkovsky was against special effects. He used them in levitation scenes in other films like uh, The Sacrifice or The Mirror, Solaris. This one, I'm trying to understand why he would leave away special effects and stay with a very natural look, decay look that would give it extraordinarily beautiful and yet haunting atmosphere. But there's another story too. There's a lot of people that were close to the shoot swear that the cancer that killed him and many others in the crew had its origins in stalkers, multiple shootings. They shot in factories in Estonia, really, really, really environmentally dangerous zones. Yes, you say a couple of interesting things here. It was a very troubled shoot. It was filmed three times, and we will get into that. But also, in comparing the two films, it should be noted that a lot of people claim that Jeff Vandermeer's book was inspired by Roadside Picnic and Stalker to such a degree that he went on Twitter to say that his story is 100% not a tribute to Picnic or Stalker. I have not read the book, but I've read a summary. And if you read the summary, it is not a tribute about the only thing they have in common is these people going into this location that's Gordon Daw. Now, the movie Annihilation, which is also very different from the book, does get much closer to Stalker. So the movie has a lot more in common with Stalker, whereas the book seems to have almost nothing really with it. When did you first see the film? I saw Stalker when it came out. I was probably seven or eight years old in Argentina. And my parents took me to see Solaris. And of course, I was like, what the hell is this? First, of course, it was kind of slow. It was Russian. Still trouble reading subtitles. But also, I remember at that time that I was mesmerized by it. Throughout my youth and my growing up, 
I knew who Tarkovsky was. So when Talker came out, I was probably in my teens and, and was really, really hypnotized by it. I watched it last week again. Going back to what I said before, I would have loved to see a version of a Stalker with the special effects that Tarkovsky had in mind and then decided to discard. Why? But not because Annihilation influenced my viewing or because I became a different human being. What I was missing a little bit is that I found that Stalker, the character, was telling me too much what the zone was doing. And we know that cinema is a viewing experience. I felt a little bit cheated. One of the most interesting things that I realized this time is that I didn't remember how much emphasis Tarkovsky had on shooting the human face. I think he was mesmerized by it and in, in a way become a zone in itself. So as much decay that we see, surroundings and the atmosphere, the characters as we see them, elaborate thoughts and deal with the strangeness of the zone leaves us hypnotized. I saw it when it first came out. The reason I saw it, I had a membership to the Chicago Film Festival. Okay. And often film festivals, if you have a membership, they tend to have a free movie a month, a preview of a movie that's going to be released. They showed Stalker. Now I'm going to be honest here. The first time I saw it, I hated it. <laughs> I was bored out of my head. I didn't get it. I had no idea understanding what was going on. Have you seen I 2001 hated... before? Yes, okay. and that's my favorite movie of all time. It's the greatest right. movie ever made. But this, I hated it so much, I said, I am never going to see another movie by Tarkovsky. <laughs> much, much later, and I think it was after the year 2000, I saw Solera, and I was mesmerized. I have no idea what it meant. I'm not sure I could really follow a plot or anything. I didn't care. I was absolutely mesmerized. And I've seen that probably more than any of his other films. Stalker comes in second. So because of that, I said, okay, I have to start seeing his other films. And I saw Stalker again, and this time I was absolutely mesmerized. Didn't really understand it, but something, I guess, about me had changed. Maybe I had seen more films by people like Brazon and Antonioni and sure. Bergman, so that the pacing and even the understanding totally of what was going on didn't have to be a prime importance. And then I've seen not all of his films, but most of his other films. So now I love Stalker. I think I understand it more this time than before. But I do think you did mention something that I do think did hit me. Tarkovsky says that he's a visual storyteller. Right. That the visual is so much more important than anything else. But at the same time, you're right. We are told about what happens in the zone. We are told that it's tricky and things change and things are dangerous. This can happen and you have to do this or this will happen. But nothing ever really does. Right. We just have to accept the fact that this is the way the zone is, even though visually he never really justifies it. And I think what's interesting for me is that now you've mentioned that, it feels as if he probably wanted us, the viewers, to have the talker take us into the zone pretty much like the writer and the professor. He wants us to go into the journey and trust him. In a way, I think he left all the visual effects out, kind of answering my own question. What he wanted is that for us to make a leap of faith or have faith in another human being. So the question of can we trust someone becomes much more evident when you're being told, don't go astray because the zone will hurt you. You'll never find your way out. It is a strange film in that sense. 
What are some of your favorite scenes? I love the ending with the mutant girl. That was very unexpected. That's one of the things that you cannot unsee. When you take out all the special effects, there are only two or three left. There's one with the bird hovers into the room that kind of disappears. The other one was a voice saying, stop, that we're blaming each other. Who said that? And it was the zone who actually made that noise. Going back to the ending, when the daughter of the talker moves the glasses, she has no legs, but her mind is very powerful, telekinetic powers. The same kind of ending as Annihilation, where Oscar Isaac and Natalie Portman, they have the shimmer in their eyes. Right. So something from inside has made its way outside. You're absolutely right. And then I remember when it starts to rain, there's a beautiful shot. And if anything, people should watch Stalker for that shot. It's a very, very long shot. Starts with the Stalker, and then it goes over this puddle of water. Then you start seeing religious icon, seeing a gun, syringes, a lot of debris. Typical Tarkovsky decay. Tarkovsky was the best filmmaker ever to use water to his aesthetics. The shots that I love are this kind of floating haiku shots that are very peaceful. There's another shot of the original footage that was left of a whirlwind, a very floaty miasma, a volcanic lava thing, really a whirlwind that was going through. And then you start going, oh, I wonder if the footage that was burned was like that because that was mesmerized. What was yours, by the way? What were your favorite well, well, there are two particularly that I love. The entry into the zone, how they yes. have to get past the guards and make it into the zone. Someone said that it doesn't quite make any sense if you think about it, but at the same time, it's about the only really exciting fast-paced section (laughs) of the movie and it is quite thrilling the second one is the phone call where they're close to the room and all of a sudden this phone rings and it keeps ringing and someone answers it and he says no this isn't the clinic and hangs up and suddenly they realize that phone just rang I do also like the ending within the zone where they've all gotten to the room and they all have a choice to go into the room and get their deepest desires. And suddenly they realize, and I realize too, would I want to go in there? Because as they realize, none of them really know what their deepest desires are. They know what they think their deepest desires are. But that's not necessarily what their deepest desires are. Yes, very true. The whole story about the stalker's master, Porcupine, you know, who hung himself after realizing that what his deepest desire was not to save his dead brother, but to become rich. In a way, you can sum it up, the movie, in one sentence is, be careful what you wish for. But you did talk about the movie did have one of the most troubled productions in movie history. It was filmed three times. The first time it was shot, they were using a new type of Kodak film, which was about to be used very regularly in the U.S. Blade Runner was shot on it, Star Wars. But it was very new to the Soviet Union. When it was sent to the lab to be developed, they messed up and it came out very blue. And very greenish, right? Yeah, right. very greenish. There was a lot of repercussions on that. Someone was fired, an assistant sent to the photographer 
first, even though it probably wasn't his fault. And it's one of the reasons why Tchaikovsky got a different cinematographer for the second time he filmed it. The second time he filmed it, he didn't like the look of the film either. But I think this is the one, though, that was kept. It was not destroyed or anything. And some people, upon seeing some of the shots from it, do think that today a colorist could have come in and restored it to the way that Tchaikovsky originally saw it. He almost gave up at that point, but they decided to go one more time. They couldn't shoot it at the original place because there was an earthquake. Right. So right. they had to shoot it someplace else, and they found this abandoned area. With yeah, in, es these, in Estonia, right. Right, with these old factories that had leaked all these chemicals into the water. And yes, a lot of people do believe that because they spent so much time even going into the water where these chemicals were, and not just here, but in other areas as well, that it did lead to cancer and lead to the death of Tarkovsky, his wife, I think the cinematographer, maybe not him, but the lead actor, similar to an American movie called The Conqueror, perhaps John Wayne's absolutely worst film where he played Genghis Khan. I've never seen it. It's supposed to be <laughs> wow. But it was filmed in an area where they did the atomic bomb experiment. Wow. John Wayne, Susan Hayward, Pedro Armanderas all got cancer later on, and people attribute it to having filmed in that area. You know what's interesting about this is that if you see documentaries or behind-the-scenes featurettes of both directors, going back to Annihilation and, and Alex Garland, you can see how hands-on Alex Garland was really, for example, taking the bare animatronics head and was playing with it, put it in his hands, and making play with shadows and light. He himself was walking the bare head right next to the the actors. The same thing with Tarkovsky. You can see them walking into a scene and really moving a branch or taking things away from them, moving the actors in a different direction. These people had a sort of the conception of the framing of how an image should look that for them it was just like a life and death situation. Tarkovsky fortunately had a lot of bad luck in his shoots. And if you remember the sacrifice, does that scene where they burn the whole the house. house. Best cinematographer in the world. Bergman cinematographer tells him the film got stuck. You know, and you, you can't stop a fire once the fire is going. Right. They had to rebuild that house. In they two had weeks. to rebuild the house. So guy probably had the worst luck ever. But he kept going. Those things are not going to defeat these filmmakers. It's an inspiration for those out there who are filmmakers never to give up. Really trust your vision and go for it. There are two other areas I'd like to get into in talking about Falker. One has to do with the meaning, what Tarkovsky is trying to say. And Tarkovsky was an Orthodox Christian, and he did profess his faith. And his films are filled with spirituality or attempting to find spirituality, what man's relationship to God is. He did have a quote, and he said, It seems to me that the individual today stands at a crossroads, faced with the choice of whether to pursue the existence of blind consumer, subject to the implacable march of new technology, and the endless multiplication of material goods, or to seek out a new way that will lead to spiritual responsibility, a way that ultimately might mean not only his personal salvation, but also the saving of society at large, in other words, a turn to God. And I think to some degree, there is a Christian parable here. We have the stalker who is like priest. He is their leader. You have to take him on faith. You have to believe that what he says is true. Correct. He's taking them to 
this place that is not a straight line. He says it's only 200 yards away, which normally would be a very simple path. But Christianity is not a straight path. You have to go in a very roundabout way. And you reach the innermost part of the zone where your deepest desires will be fulfilled. And what do you do? You have to decide are you going to take that leap of faith or not? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Is that a quote from Sculpting in Time? I didn't write down exactly where I got it. That's a fantastic book for all of you out there. Tarkovsky's writings, they're as good as his films. I think what you're saying about religion, yes, if you think about Andrei Rublev, the sacrifice, correct. You have to sacrifice yourself for the good of humanity. His themes are very Christian. You know what's interesting about him is that when we talk about Brezon, you talk about austerity. And with Osu, you have shots that were very haiku-like, Fellini of humor and surrealism like never seen before. The torment in Bergman. But Tarkovsky, there's something about the way he photographed nature and human faces. There's nobody that comes even close to him that in a way reflects on our spirit. I think that there's something about connecting nature whether decay or not decay. He loved that. He loved the remnants of humanity in a state of decay, yet at the same time, he found beauty in it. I often have a conversation with a friend, and we talk about the approach to religion and spirituality in film, and there seems to be a big difference between the U.S. approach and a European approach. In the U.S., I feel like we're often very kitschy with our sword and sandals and our biblical epics. Or for me, we have people like Scorsese, who I think utterly fails at really exploring religion. But it's very rare for me to find a European-like approach to studying Christianity in the U.S. So the rapture is one of the few exceptions. But in Europe, we have people like Bresson and Pasolini, Bellini and Koslowski, right. Sanusi and Bunuel and Bergman. And not all Christian, Bunuel and Pasolini were atheists, yet their attitude toward religion, they take it a lot more seriously. Yeah, I think what happens is there's an aspect of Christianity that filmmakers want to explore mostly the sinful part of, you know, committing sin. At the same time, this is an evangelist way of looking at things, whereas in European filmmaker, I think there's an exploration of faith. It goes at the core on some of these filmmakers like Kieslowski or even Bergman, even Tarkovsky, there's a certain exploration of religion there that is very deep. My friend sums it up when he says that in America, being a Christian is an emotional decision. In Europe, being a Christian is an intellectual decision. Wow, that is a very interesting way of describing that. And going back to Tarkovsky and Stalker, there's a part of these filmmakers that when you photograph nature the way they did, you make it transcendent. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the idea of it being a sci-fi film, because ironically, Andrei Tarkovsky was not a fan of science fiction. He said that he dismissed the sci-fi genre for its comic book trappings and vulgar commercialism, and yet he made two of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made. And in a way, one is actually due to another sci-fi movie. One of the reasons why he made Solaris is he did not like 2001, A Space Odyssey. But science fiction is very, very popular. What is it about sci-fi? that just really appeals to people. I love sci-fi. The realm of sci-fi is that we are allowed to question reality. 
That for me is the most interesting part of sci-fi is the famous what if is like an ever expanding universe, a point of departure that allows you to question everything from your own senses, your mind, reality around you. Good sci-fi makes you question yourself. And beginning to close out, uh, before I get more information about the film, I'm going to quote some more Tchaikovsky. Upon its release, the film's reception was not that favorable, at least by the government. The officials at Agostino, which is the government group, otherwise known as the State Committee for Cinematography, they were very critical of the film. When they told Tchaikovsky that stalkers should be faster and more dynamic, Tchaikovsky replied, the film needs to be slower and duller at the start so that the viewers who walked into the wrong theater have time to leave before the main action starts. <laughs> the Goskino representatives, they tried to tell him that, well, they were only giving him the point of view of the audience. Karski supposedly said back to them, I'm only interested in the views of two people. One is called Brisson and one called Bergman. And this reminded me of Emperor Joseph II telling Mozart too many notes and Mozart saying just exactly the number of notes needed, no more. No correct, less. correct. <laughs> and then Tarkovsky said, if the regular length of a shot is increased, one becomes bored. But if you keep on making it longer, it piques your interest. And if you make it even longer, a new quality emerges a special intensity of attention. With that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $1 million to make and sold 4.3 million tickets. I assume that that means that it did make a profit, but I don't know how they exactly measure that in the Soviet Union. The asteroid 3054-Drugatskia, discovered by Nikolai Stepanovich Chernik in 1977, was named after the Strugatsky brothers. The film was awarded the prize of the Ecumenical Jury at the Cannes Film Festival. Wow. Now, you talked about the Chernobyl disaster. As you say, a lot of people do relate it to the film, but you're right. It occurred seven years after the film was made. And in this case, you might say it's an example of Oscar Wilde claim that life actually imitates art because the yes. Chernobyl disaster then became called the exclusion zone. And then people who tend to go into it refer to themselves as stalkers. At the yeah. same time, the zone of the film was inspired by a nuclear accident that took place near Chelyabinsk in 1957. Several hundred square kilometers were polluted by fallout and abandoned. There was no official mention of this forbidden zone at the time. In closing out, is there anything else you might want to say about Stalker or about Annihilation or about both films together? If you're a filmmaker, if you're a director, if you're a, a lover of cinema, these two films should be just the beginning. I urge you to look at the cinematic work of both filmmakers. These are fantastic filmmakers. Enjoy them. With that, let's start closing out. And I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Persona. Just watch Persona. And Eight and a Half. Also Streets of Crocodiles by the Brothers Quay. But Persona, that's indie filmmaking to the top. Almost like a religious experience. But if you're a filmmaker out there, I hope that film inspires you. For me, my first film will be the 2010 movie Monsters, which is about some sort of extraterrestrial life form that has come to Earth and is slowly taking over in the way the shimmer is. It doesn't attack so much as reproduce so fast that it can't be stopped. The story is about someone trying to escort someone through a zone on the border of Mexico and the U.S. that has been almost entirely taken over by the life form. 
And then Alphaville from 1965. Yeah, love it. Jean-Luc Godard's riff on film noir and science fiction in which an agent from Earth is sent to Alphaville, a city on a faraway planet with the intention to find a missing person and free the city from its tyrannical ruler. I'm going to add Arrival. Arrival was a beautiful Mm -hmm. film. Villeneuve is also a filmmaker to reckon with. What is next for you? What should we be looking for? I sort of finish a sci-fi thriller, of all things. I have been writing quite a lot. I'm I'm writing a new screenplay that has supernatural elements to it. uh, And it's about people getting stuck in an island. Nothing like Lost. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I'm constantly elaborating ideas and wishing that this pandemic leaves us pretty soon and especially that the vaccines do work. I also encourage people to check out your IMDb listing as well as the Wikipedia page and check out some of your work. I'm going to plug your stuff, too, because you should read Howard's own writing. Yesterday, I read They Only Come at Night and I loved it. Looking forward to reading more of your short stories. Well, as for me, I'll go over my usual litany. I'm a screenwriter and screenplay consultant, so I have a Howard Kasner Facebook consultation page. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings, where I talk about issues concerning movies and screenwriting. I have published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion, and these are sci-fi, fantasy, and horror short stories. I have published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader. I'm an amateur photographer. You can find those on Instagram. Recently, for the Lambcast podcast, I was asked to host an episode on Wonder Woman 1984. And you can find that under Lambcast on many streaming platforms. And in that, I and my guests leave no turn unstoned in that movie. Spoiler, <laughs> nobody liked it. <laughs> the previous podcast was with the Real Short Box podcaster Kevin Myth, where we discuss Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and Manhattan Melodrama, both films about best friends who grew up to be on opposite sides of the law. The next episode will be with a returning guest, blogger, and podcaster of Cinema Recall, where we will discuss Go and 71 Fragments of a Chronicle of Chance, two films about three groups of disparate people who all meet up during a shocking act of violence. Wow. So with that, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show. Thank you so, so much. And I wish everybody a wonderful, healthy and prosperous new year. And thank you for having me. Thank you.